Good morning and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. Today is Sunday, July 27, 2014. My name is Leah and I'm your moderator for today's meeting. The share ID for Friday, July 25th is 6692. This morning, A Vision for You presents Chapter 7, Working with Others. The whole point of joining Overeaters Anonymous and moving all through the steps is to take us to Step 12. Step 12 states, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to compulsive overeaters and to practice these principles in all our affairs. Those of us who have had a spiritual awakening are now charged with a responsibility. This responsibility is to carry this message that we've had a spiritual awakening as a result of the 12 steps and to carry that message to other compulsive overeaters. Chapter 7 of the big book, Working with Others, tells us exactly how to deliver this message to others. Here to speak to us this morning on Chapter 7, Working with Others, is Kim G. Kim, a recovered compulsive overeater from New Jersey, spends much time intensively working with other compulsive overeaters and carrying this message of recovery. And it is now my pleasure to welcome Kim to the line. Good morning, Kim. Thank you, Leah. Good morning, everyone. My name is Kim G, and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater from South Jersey. And I am, I am so excited to uh, hopefully encourage people to to uh, really get more intensive working with others, and encourage people to go through these steps so they can start working with others. Um, you know, I really thought sponsoring was optional. I really thought that you know it's only the gurus that really needed to sponsor, and it was just enough for me to go to meetings and try to, uh, you know, try to keep the food down one day at a time. And uh, so before we get in the chapter, I just wanted to kind of pull out some stuff in the big book that is really letting us know that, you know, working with others is not optional. Working with others is the foundation stone um, of our recovery. So um, I'm going to just bring out certain pages and tell you where the big book is telling us that we must work with others. And then we're going to get into the chapter. Uh, so even before the book starts, in the forward, it lets us know that. So in the forward to the second edition on XVI, um, it says he suddenly, which is they're talking about Bill, he suddenly realized that in order to save himself, he must carry this mes- message to another alcoholic. And then further down on that page, it said this seems to prove that one alcoholic could affect another alcoholic as no alcoholic, non-alcoholic could. It also indicated that strenuous work, one alcoholic with another, was vital to permanent recovery. And even when we get into the doctor's opinion, when, when Dr. Silkworth is observing these recovered men, he's observing that same exact dynamic. So in the doctor's opinion on page XXV, it's talking about Bill again. It says, as, as part of his rehabilitation, he commenced to present his conceptions to other alcoholics, impressing upon them that he must do likewise with still others. Okay, and then in Bill's story, 
when he talks about, you know, after he's gone through these steps, they're on page 14 and 15, he is talking about what that now means for him to be recovered. And it says here, the thought came that there were thousands of hopeless alcoholics who might be glad to have what he has so freely been given. My friend had emphasized the absolute necessity of demonstrating these principles in all my affairs. Particularly, it was imperative to work with others. I'm sorry, my dog wanted to emphasize that point, sorry. <laughs> if an alcoholic failed to perfect and enlarge his spiritual life through work and self-sacrifice for others, he could not survive the certain trials and low spots ahead. If he did not work, he would surely drink again, and if he drank, he would surely die. Then faith would be dead indeed. With us, it is just like that. So we're going to see multiple places in the big book. It's letting us know that our very lives, our very lives as ex-problem drinkers depends on our constant thought of others and how we can meet their needs. So this, I just want to stress how essential this is. This was something I was missing um, in many years and over years anonymous. I really didn't understand that my sobriety, my abstinence, really depended on working with others. And the other thing I want to talk about, um, because the word sponsor is not in the first 164 pages. The word sponsor is something that has grown out of fellowship. So what I want to emphasize is how do we work with others? And I want us to kind of look at our prejudices about sponsoring versus working with others. Because working with others does not just mean this one-on-one -on -one sponsorship. So I want you to think to yourself, you know, how do you interact with the still suffering? How does that line up with what the big book is telling us? You know, when you're getting phone calls, are you um, calling those people back in a timely manner? I mean, that's one of the, I remember myself frustrating, and I get a lot of phone calls saying, I'm calling all these people, and nobody's calling me back. You know, when you go into a meeting, are you someone that goes in early, you know, comes to the meeting late and leaves early? Are you someone that comes to the meeting and only talks to the people you know so that someone who's crawling their way into OA is being left alone in the corner? You know, when you are working with others, once you get them through the steps, are you just talking with people that have been through the steps or are you grabbing that next compulsive reader who's suffering in order to do that? And part of that is what is your purpose? What is your purpose? when you're working with others? Is your purpose to get people through the 12 steps or are you more acting like a diet buddy, which was my problem? Are you just taking people's food and asking them which tools that they've done or are you actively bringing them through this work? And remember, you can't transmit something you do not have. So we have to get through the steps first in order to help some other people do that. So how do I do that? I have to get to know this book. I have to make sure that I'm constantly in this book. And then on a broader level, let's look at our meeting formats. Is our meeting formats doing the, doing the uh, primary purpose? You know, I like the saying, you leave your mess for your sponsor and the message for the meeting. Is the message being carried in your meetings or are you setting up your formats in such a way that people can just complain? You know, I, I like to use the example, you know, if you go to a parenting meeting, and somebody raises their hand and talks about how they're arguing with their husband all the time. And the next person talks about the fact they're so stressed at work. And the next person talks about how their mother-in-law is coming to, uh, to their house this weekend. I mean, if you were in a parenting meeting, you would say, what's going on? I thought we're talking about parenting. 
And people will say, yeah, 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 but my arguments with my husband affects my parenting. My job stress affects my parenting. My mother-in-law being in my house affects my parenting. Yeah, so I'm here to learn about parenting. Is that what we're doing in meetings? Are we carrying this message in the meeting, or are we talking about our life circumstances so we can just get comfortable so we don't eat for one more day? You know, and, and also, too, with these 12 steps, the message in the, 12, in, in the book is that the 12 steps is having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, we try to carry this message. Now, my experience is most of the time sponsoring is equated with numbers of days of abstinence. In my area, it was 21 days was the magical number when you could start sponsoring. How did it work to step? So I'm basically someone's diet buddy. And what my experience has been is if I am not through the steps, I do not have neutrality around the food. If I do not have neutrality around the food, what I'm doing is I'm inflicting my food plan on somebody because I can't talk to people who don't eat like me. So I think, you know, the big book kind of is letting us know that. And, and I know there's a lot of formats in a way that don't support that. And if what you're doing is working, I'm not saying to change it. I'm just trying to let you know what lines up with the big book. And I'm also letting you know what's lined up with my experience. Until I had neutrality with the food, I, I was unable to help people discover what their binge foods are. Okay? And if you're not recovered, if you're out there today and you're struggling and you're, you're wondering how you can get this message, I want you to think of this presentation on the other end. Look at, look at this chapter as the sponsee. Are you ready to submit to this program? Are you ready to go through this process? Okay. So the other thing I want to just talk about before we go into the chapter is after I get my sponsees through this chapter, one of the things I, all, I encourage them to do is to get very quiet with God and ask themselves how you can most efficiently carry this message. Because we're all individuals and God will utilize our talent. God will utilize us because we are uniquely crafted to help each other. So we have to get quiet and look at, you know, how, do, how are we going to carry this message? So, for example, you know, how many days a week are you going to talk to people? A lot of people talk to people daily. I personally talk to people three days a week. Other people like to talk only face-to-face. -face. Other people are okay sponsoring on the phone. You know, how do you want to handle the food? Do you want someone to commit the food to you on a daily basis? Do you want it to be over the phone? Do you want it to be via email? You know, what are you going to require? Are you going to require them to go to so many meetings? Are you requiring them to make phone calls? And what you have to do is let that person you're going to sponsor, let them know what you're going to require so they can make an informed decision about whether they want to work with you. Because everyone is going to sponsor differently. So, for example, just to use myself, I only sponsor three days a week. Some people really want to talk to someone every day. And that is okay. It just means I'm not the sponsor for them. So my job is to give them an idea of what I'm going to require so they can make an informed decision about what, whether they want to work with me. Okay, so that's just some, some stuff I wanted to talk about before we get into the book. So let's open up the book to page 89. And let's look how the big book is telling us to present this. Okay, so once again, our personalities are going to be different, but the actual path of how to work with someone is very clear in here, and we can utilize this. This is, this is our, our roadmap once again. So that first sentence is going to reiterate what I had talked about with the other quotes in the book. It says, practical experience shows 
that nothing will so much ensure immunity from drinking as intensive work with other alcoholics. And I'll tell you, that's what I've wanted all my life. Immunity, immunity from eating. I mean, I've heard that steps 1 through 11 have simply prepared us to do the real work, which is step 12. So if I want that immunity, I'm going to have to intensively work with other alcoholics. And intensive is a really strong word. If carrying this message is convenient, I would ask you to question, are you you doing enough? Because this is not a convenient process. My disease was not convenient. And my recovery is not convenient. But it's very rewarding. Okay, so we're going to look at how they approach these these, uh, suffering alcoholics. And what I'm going to go over is just some of the techniques in here. Because they're talking a lot about going to hospitals, going to doctors, going to to, um, to ministers, trying to find these alcoholics. Because you remember, there was no AA when this book was published. There was no meetings they could go into. Today, we are blessed that we have OA meetings with Division for You, face-to-face meetings. We don't need to search out people in McDonald's and fast food restaurants. We simply need to go to a go to a, a an Overeaters Anonymous meeting. But we can use the same approach that this book is telling us. So on page 89, that first, um, that last paragraph, it says, perhaps you're not acquainted with any drinkers who want to recover. And that's a big deal because I am acquainted with a lot of compulsive overeaters. I'm not really acquainted with a lot who want to recover. And what I mean by that is a lot of people in a way, and I was one of them for many years, that was totally content sitting in the rooms complaining about what it was like to be a compulsive overeater, having no desire to actually do the steps. It was just comfortable to be sitting in a room with a bunch of people who were like me and feeling a connection. So who I am seeking out is not the person who doesn't want to do the steps and is just saying, okay, well, I'm just going to try to stay on this diet until I lose 20 pounds. I'm looking for the person who is desperate, the person who wants to recover, the person who's looking for that real answer. And that takes a lot of effort to do that. So on the top of page 90, is letting us know, if he does not want to stop drinking, don't waste time trying to persuade him. So if someone does not want to put the food down, then I'm not going to try to persuade them. I am not going to convince anyone to put the food down. What's going to convince them is the food. And I need to give them that dignity to let the food pummel them into a state of reasonableness. And what I'm going to do is make sure that I am cordial and friendly so when they get to that point, they're going to feel comfortable reaching out their hand to me. And then they're letting us know to find out about them, find out about their religious leanings. You know, one of the things I find is, you know, how long have they been there away? What are their prejudices? Especially because I do a lot of phone work. What end of the scale are they on? I am very, very blessed. Because I have been obese, I've been a size 24 where I couldn't walk up a flight of stairs without being short of breath. I've also been a size 2 where I was losing my period and also my hair. And I've been the current size I am now, which is a size 10, binging and purging and over-exercising to the point that I would run 10 miles on a Saturday morning and because my hip hurt so bad I couldn't walk the rest of the weekend. So if I find out, you know, I'm not going to tell the obese person the stories about being a size 2. I'm not going to tell the anorexic about the about being short of breath being a size 24. So I'm trying to find out about them so that I can weave my story in such a way 
that I'm going to make entice them to come in and talk to me. Okay? And then further down, it says, if he wants to quit for good, and if he would go to any extreme to do so. So I think one of the things that, that we kind of have watered down is we talk about one day at a time. One day at a time. Are you ready to put it down one day at a time? Well, that's what we do. But the big book is instructing us. We're asking them, do they want to quit for good? Are they beaten? You know, I often hear, well, yeah, I'm willing to put the food down until I lose 30 pounds. I'm willing to put the food down because I have a wedding that I'm going to be in in three months. I'm willing to put the food down until my doctor gets off my back and my cholesterol gets under control. That's not the person that is ready to do the steps. That's the person who's willing to do a diet until certain consequences are taken away. So the big book is instructing us. We're looking for the people who are done, absolutely done. Okay, and then on page 91, it says, call on him while he is still jittery. He may be more receptive when depressed. So they're letting us know here that when someone is coming off a rug, when someone's coming off a binge, that's the perfect time to get them. That's when they're ripe for the picking. You know, I hear in AA, one of the frustrations is with a lot with the rehabs is that they're not getting people who are, who are desperate. They're not getting people who are smelling and stinking from the, from the booze. They're, coming, they're getting people who are 30, 60, 90 days sober, walking in their rooms. They've got the, 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 the hat trick of AA. They've got the job back, the girl back, and the truck back. They don't need these 12 steps. They've got it under control. And the equivalent, I think, in, in, in OA, once again, this is my experience, is we often tell the newcomer, well, you need to have 30 days, 60 days, 90 days abstinent, and then we're going to work the steps. But let me tell you, my experience is, if I'm 60 days abstinent, I don't need no freaking steps. I am powerful again. I have figured this out. I have been able to do it. So when someone comes off a run, when someone is, is in a meeting at my home group, it's on Sunday morning, so a lot of times we get people jittery from, from binging on Saturday night. That's exciting because they're going to be receptive. When are we most desperate? When we're getting the shakes off of, of the sugar or whatever our binge foods are. So we're saying there, you know, engage in general conversation in the next paragraph. And I love the uh, one, two, three, the third paragraph down on 91. It says, give them a sketch of your drinking career up to the time you quit. And say nothing for the moment of how that was accomplished. Now, a sketch. And I looked up that word in the dictionary. It says, the preliminary drawing giving essential features without details. So once again, as I line myself up with the big book, I'm changing how I talk to newcomers. Because I think in, in LA, what do we do when we tell our stories? We go into our childhood. You know, for me, I'm a Catholic school kid. I'm the oldest in my family. My parents love me too much and smothered me. I am using all these ways that I am eliminating people from identifying in. What am I doing? I'm giving them a sketch of my drinking career. I'm talking about what it's like to, to um, be binging all night, thinking you're never going to be able to eat again, and waking up in the morning and going through the wrappers trying to figure out if there's one candy in there that you didn't eat. I'm talking about eating half a pizza and then in the middle of the night getting up and digging it out of the trash because I have to have more. I'm talking about the fact that things are burnt or spoiled but that effect that I'm craving is so strong that I'm still eating that food. So I'm talking about the specifics of my eating so that I'm pulling them in. 
my war stories are a good way in order to get them to identify out. And as I'm starting to see the interest, as I'm starting to hear that on the phone, the gas of, because <gasps> they've done that same thing, or the eyeballs popping out in a face-to-face meeting is saying, commence to describe yourself as an alcoholic. Give him an account of your struggles to stop. Show him the mental twist which leads to the first drink of the spray. If he is an alcoholic, he will understand at once. So what we're trying to do is get them to identify in with this twofold illness. Do they have the allergies of body? Once you pick up certain substances, can you no longer reasonably predict how much you're going to eat? And even when you get that willpower to put it down, why does your mind tell you to pick that up? The insanity is not three bites or three donuts into a dozen donuts. The insanity is why when we're stone-cold abstinent, are we convinced by this mental twist to pick up the food and this time it'll be okay? So we're going to really jam that home. We're going to talk about that mental twist, the mental, the uncomfortability, the restlessness, the irritability, the discontentment. Because once again, if my real problem is food and weight, which is what I thought it was, if my real problem is the food, then abstinence is the answer. But as a compulsive overeater, what I have learned by studying this big book is abstinence is my real problem. I can't get comfortable abstinence. I am restless. I am irritable. I am discontent. I am tortured. I am dominated by the people in my life. And the only way that I can find any ease and comfort is to get that first bite. So I'm, I'm absolutely jamming that home. Now here's something that's going to seem a little controversial on page 92, that first paragraph. If you are satisfied he is a real alcoholic, begin to dwell on the hopeless feature of the malady. If you are satisfied, sounds like we're qualifying people. Because once again, Overeaters Anonymous, for many people, winds up being a free diet. They don't want to pay for Jenny Craig. They don't want to pay for Weight Watchers. They heard about this 12-step program. They're coming in. They want a food plan. They want to have some people they can call. They want that dieting of support. That's not who I'm here for. You learn in, in there is a solution about the moderate eater, the heavy eater, and the true compulsive overeater. All are welcome in Overeaters Anonymous. All. However, my job as a real alcoholic, an alcoholic of my type, is to carry this message to the person who suffers from compulsive overeating. The hard drinker can stay sober on meetings. The hard eater can stay sober on fellowship. That's not who I'm here for. And the danger is when a hard eater tries to sponsor someone like me. If a hard eater can stay sober on meetings in the fellowship and tries to get me, the real compulsive overeater, to stay sober that way, I'm going to die of my disease. So as a real compulsive overeater, welcome to the hard eaters and the moderate eaters. My job is to find that real compulsive overeater. I'm not going to sponsor a hard eater. They don't need me. They don't need the spiritual solution. So it's saying here, once again, go on the queer mental condition surrounding that first drink. Be careful not to brand him as an alcoholic. Let him draw his own conclusion. That's the power of our own stories is because we are weaving it in such a way to get them identified. And I'm not telling him or her that they're an alcoholic. I'm trying to get them to identify in with my drinking. And if they identify in with my drinking and I describe myself as a compulsive overeater, maybe it'll draw their own conclusion. And it's saying if he sticks to the idea that he can still control his drinking, tell him that he possibly can. 
if he is not too alcoholic, but insists that he is severely afflicted, there may be little chance he can recover for himself. So I'm not here, once again, to convince. If someone thinks they can control and enjoy their eating, and maybe they can, then my job is to leave them alone. I am not there to inflict the 12 steps on anybody. I'm there to offer this solution if they want it. And I'm going to continue on 92. It says, continue to speak of alcoholism as a fatal malady. Talk about the conditions of body and mind which accompany it. Explain that many are doomed who never realize this predicament. But you may talk to the compulsive reader about the hopelessness of alcoholism because you offer a solution. So one of the things I know I used to say in LA a lot is keep coming back. It works if you work. It will love you till you love yourself. Because, and I have to tell you, best of intentions. But the reason I did that is because I didn't have anything to tell them. I had no solution to offer them before I got in this book. So I would use a lot of canned sayings because I felt for them because I didn't want them to suffer. But since I had no real solution, I would just say that. I wanted them to feel better. I didn't want them to be upset. Yet the big book is telling me, I'm, gonna, I'm supposed to tell them they're going to die if they don't do this work. I'm supposed to let them know this is a hopeless situation. And it's not a mean thing to tell them that because now I have a solution. I have a solution that I can offer them. And then at the bottom of 93, 92 into 93, even though your protege may not have entirely admitted the condition, he has become very curious to know how you got well. Let him ask you that question if he will. Tell him exactly what happened to you. So this is, once again, something that has really changed for me since I became a student of the big book. When a newcomer would come in, I would tell them about the inventory. I would tell them about the amends. I would tell them about you know, food plans, all these different things. What we have read here is all we're talking about is problem, 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 problem. And then when the newcomer, when the returning member says, how did you escape? That's when we start talking about the solution. Because if you don't know what you suffer from, why would you care about the solution? Why would you care about the program of action? I'm coming in because I need to lose 30 pounds and I want a food plan, and you're telling me I need a spiritual solution? No, I want your diet. You seem, you're skinny. I want to be skinny. Give me your food plan. You know, I think that's once a little of course here, but I remember also, too, a saying is, Find someone who has what you want and ask him or her how he or she is achieving it. First of all, that is a mean thing. I think it's very mean to tell a, sponsor, tell a newcomer they're supposed to figure out who they're sponsoring them. We're told over and over again in this big book, we should be approaching the newcomers. And as a sick compulsive overeater, what I would do is pick the prettiest girl who's thin who has a cute boyfriend because that's what I wanted. That's what I wanted. So if you are new and you're looking for a sponsor, because unfortunately, you know, our recovery rate is, is very low in OA. We only have about a 3 to 5% recovery rate, so it is difficult to find a sponsor. Is what you want. What question you should be asking is not what food plan someone's on and, and, and how heavy they were now, how, what their weight is. But you should be asking, did you absolutely go through all 12 steps? Have you had a spiritual awakening? And if that is true, ask that person how they did it. Because that's the whole goal here. The whole goal here is to have a spiritual awakening. So you need someone who's had that in order for them to teach you that. Okay, and in the bottom of 93, 
is talking about those people that are religious denominations who know more than you do. I mean, I can't imagine being a nun or a rabbi or a priest and coming into a 12-step program and being told, yeah, the, the, the solution is you have to find a relationship with God. I mean, how humbling that must be. But I like to look at page 93 from my, from my perspective. Because I have to tell you, I don't meet a lot of newcomers in Overeaters Anonymous. I really don't. What I meet are people like me who are coming in for the third, the fourth, the fifth time, crawling into the rooms because there's no other place for us to go. And me, after 17 years in OA, and someone telling me they're going to teach me the 12 steps, I mean, I was in a group chair. I was on the region board. I spoke at world service at a meeting. Who are you to tell me about Overeaters Anonymous? You know, yesterday I was actually working with somebody that, you know, and this is another thing I find is people coming in from other 12-step programs. This girl is dying in bulimia. However, she knows the big book better than I do. She comes from an AA background. She can quote the big book a lot better than I do. So let's look at 93 here according to the us, what I was commonly see, people coming back to OA. He talks about, in this case, he's going to wonder how you can add anything to what he already knows. But he will be curious to learn why his own convictions have not worked and why yours seem to work so well. He may be an example of the truth that faith alone is insufficient. To be vital, faith must be accompanied by self-sacrifice and unselfish and constructive action. Admit that he probably knows more about it than you do, but call to his attention the fact that however deep his faith and knowledge, he could not have applied it or he would not drink. And that's what someone confronted me with. As much as I knew about Overeaters Anonymous, as much as I did service, so I was five years into a relapse and 50 pounds heavier. And these people that I heard on, on the specific phone line were identifying themselves as recovered and were not eating. So I say that to people. Okay, you have all this knowledge of, of, of the 12 steps. You have all this experience in LA. Are you able to stop eating? When's the last time you were abstinent? How long were you able to maintain that working the, the OA program the way you were? And that often shoots them up, wait a minute, you're right. And they're curious why I live a life free. Because I have to tell you, for many years in Overeaters Anonymous, what I thought was, if I do enough tools, if I keep myself distracted enough, if I buy the right Tupperware, and learn all these cool recipes that people gave me, and I would go to bed at night totally exhausted from having fought everything and everyone, colliding, 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 but I went to bed abstinent, that was a good day in Overeaters Anonymous. And a good year in Overeaters Anonymous was if I was abstinent more that year than I was not abstinent. And let me tell you, as someone who's walked through these 12 steps, my reality is today is not that I can be strong enough to beat the food. It's I don't want the food. I am not tortured. I have binge foods in my, in my freezer for my parents when they come over. I can walk anywhere on this earth because I do not want my binge foods. And that's what the 12 steps promises me. And I have never heard that for many years in the rooms of Overeaters Anonymous. So at this point when we've talked to the person, we've... We've drugged the problem in. We've let them know the solution is a spiritual awakening. On the top of 94, it says, outline the program of action, explaining how you made a self-appraisal, which is steps four through seven, how you straightened out your past, which is steps eight and nine, and why you are now endeavoring on being helpful to him, which is your step 12. 
It is important for him to realize that your attempt to pass this on plays on to him plays a vital part of your own recovery. I am grateful every time someone lets me carry this message because every time I get to carry this message, it strengthens my recovery. I hope it helps other people, but I know it's necessary for me. And I know my recovery is strengthened every time I carry this message. And at the bottom, um, see, the bottom of that first full paragraph on 94, it says, maybe you have disturbed him about the question of alcoholism. This is all to the good. The more hopeless he feels, the better. He will be more likely to follow your suggestions. So I have to fight that part of me that doesn't want somebody to feel bad. You know, when I give a beginner's meeting, all I do in face-to-face meeting, all I do is the doctor's opinion. And my goal is to disturb them. My goal is to let them see that they are screwed. That's step one in an assessment. I am screwed. I have an allergy to the body that will never change, permanent disability. And I have an obsession of the mind that untreated will always torture me until I take that first bite. If that's not disturbing, I don't know what is. But that's my job, is to disturb them, hopefully to touch something in them that they will want to do the work. And then it continues on 94, your candidate may give reasons why he need not follow all the program. Do not contradict his views. So if someone thinks that they can do this willy-nilly, which I thought for years, I'm not going to contradict them, but I'm going to let them know my experience with Overeaters Anonymous was when I, you know, that saying in LA, take what you want and leave the rest, which we have, unfortunately, watered down to meaning I can take what I want of the program and leave the rest. And really where that saying originated was, when people are giving opinion at the front of the room, I don't have to take their opinion. I can take what I want and leave the rest of someone's opinion. But when it comes to this program of recovery, I don't have the option to take what I want or leave the rest. So I'm not going to contradict them. If they want to try this another way, if they want to go out and do research and development, if they're a real compulsive overeater, they will figure out that that doesn't work. If they're not, maybe, they're, maybe they'll be successful in losing the weight that they need to lose. Okay, so on 95, it's letting us know, simply lay out the kid a spiritual tools for his inspection. You know, step 12 says, having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we try to carry this message. Thank you, God, that the benefit of step 12 is not whether someone receives it. My job is to give people the adequate representation of this program, which means I have to know the book. My job is to know this book. And then I simply lay out this bit of spirit, spiritual tool for his inspection, and that they have to pick it up. You can have Bill Wilson come back from his grave and sponsor you, but if you're not willing to pick up that spiritual toolkit, nothing's going to happen. I used to think if I slept with the big book underneath my pillow, I would wake up recovered. I have to pick up that spiritual tool. And it says on page 95, the last sentence on the first paragraph, tell him if he wants to get well, you will do anything to help. Well, anything means I will do whatever I can to pass these 12 steps on him, 12 on steps to her. Because it says in the next paragraph, if he is not interested in your solution, if he expects you to act as a banker for his financial difficulties or a nurse for his spree, he may have to drop him until he changes his mind. This he may do after he gets hurt some more. So once again, this is part of when I explain to them what my role is as a sponsor. I'm very clear that I am here to give you the 12 steps. 
once again, mine, what I do is I do it three days a week for a half hour, and I explain. We have five minutes in the beginning. If you have any questions about the program or recovery or what we've discussed, 25 minutes is in the book. If you're looking for someone that you can just call and complain about your day, I'm not the sponsor for you. Not that that's not important. And you have a fellowship that can support you. But once I'm your sponsor, I am not your girlfriend. I'm not your counselor. I'm not your banker. I'm not your nurse. I am here to pass on the 12 steps. That is my only function. That is what I'm offering. If you don't want it, that's okay. So they're saying, if you're not interested, the next paragraph says, if he is sincerely interested and wants to see you, ask him to read this book in the interval. So I don't have them read the book personally. I have them, the first thing I do is I go through the doctor's opinion. I give them an assignment. We make an appointment for about an hour, hour and a half on the weekend. That's when I have the time. And we go through that doctor's opinion. Because once again, my experience is because in Overeaters Anonymous, we all have different allergies. If you come into AA, you know a drink is a drink is a drink. But in OA, I might be allergic to, you know, and this is why I think we have to have neutrality around the food. If I'm inflicting my food plan on somebody and I am making them abstain from my allergy foods and they're not allergic to it, that's not really helpful. But if I'm telling them to eat like me and I have foods that I can eat that they are allergic to, that is deadly. So I go under the assumption every person I work with is drunk. Until we go through that doctor's opinion, until we learn what that effect means, until they understand what they need to abstain from, we're all drunk. So I make that appointment first so we can get clear on what your abstinence is. Because abstinence has to do with abstaining from those foods and those food behaviors which create the phenomenon of craving. That's black and white. Once that phenomenon of craving happens, you can never have that food again. You can never participate in that behavior. Now, your food plan is something different. That's going to change. That's going to change as you get older, if your activity level changes, if you get pregnant, if you're going through menopause, you know, whatever that happens, that might change. And I have no idea what you should eat. No idea. I am not a medical professional. You need to talk to a medical professional about that. There's websites that can give you what, what portion sizes in general. However, I can teach you what you cannot eat. I can teach you what that allergy is. So if that's the solution you want, I'm, that's what I'm willing to offer you. Okay, and then the last paragraph, if he thinks he can do the job in some other way, prefer some other spiritual approach, encourage him to follow his own conscience. We have no monopoly on God. We merely have an approach that works with us. So I just know for 17 years working the Fellowship of Overeaters Anonymous, I did not have a solution. It wasn't until I got into this big book that I found the solution that allowed me to recover. We have a lot of literature in OA. If someone wants to work that literature, I encourage them to do that. But I, on page 164, it says, we cannot transmit something we do not have. That other literature did not work for me. And I have to be humble enough to say, that did not work for me. If you want to do that, find someone in the room who can do that. You know, in fact, my mother who was recovered, um, who came into the OA in the, in the 70s, she basically recovered on Al-Anon material because they didn't have OA material at the time. So I do know that there's other ways that you can recover. There's other people that might be able to use that literature. But I can't help you with literature that didn't work for me. And if you want to, if you want to um, pursue that, absolutely find it. But I can't help you with it because it's not something I have experience with working. Okay, and then we go to the top of 96, and this is a hard thing for us. It says, 
We find it a waste of time to keep chasing a man who cannot or will not work with you. If you leave such a person alone, he may soon become convinced he cannot recover himself. So I have to really pray to God on a daily basis because if someone is picking up, we have to do these steps abstinently. We cannot be drunk walking through these steps. So if someone picks up in the first couple chapters, we talk about it. We see what's going on. They commit their discipline to put the food down. If they kept keep picking up, I have to get quiet because am I helping them? Am I helping them if they keep picking up? Maybe there's another teacher out there that can help them in a different way. If I'm not being effective, if I'm not being useful, I need to be humble enough to say, I'm sorry, I can't help you. It's not in a mean thing. It's not like I'm giving up on them, but I'm not helping them by allowing them to continue to eat and go through the steps. Okay? And then this one always gets me goosebumps, but on 96, that second paragraph, suppose you're now making your second visit. So think about it. Everything we just talked about, these AAs did in one visit. How efficient is that? I'm not that efficient. I have to tell you, when I recovered three and a half years ago, the first girl I worked with, it took us an hour every single night, six days a week for 11 months to get me through the step, her through the steps. I don't know how she stayed abstinent that long. I now work with people three days a week, and it averages about six to eight weeks to get through to people through the steps. As I am as growing in understanding of effectiveness, I'm getting more effective. And what I trust is that God will bring to me the people that I can help. I can help people today that I couldn't have helped three years ago. Hopefully I will continue to grow, and in three years from now, I'll be able to help people I can't help now. So I trust that God will bring people together that can help each other. Because my style, which is much more professorial, I'm, a, I'm, you know, I'm very much black and white, this is what we need to do, that may not work for people. So someone who's got a softer hand, who is a little bit more touchy-feely, is going to be able to help people that I can't. And then someone who needs a more stiffer hand, I'm going to be able to help when the, when the more touchy-feely people can't help. And that is the beautiful of the tapestry of Overeaters Anonymous. That's the beauty of it. As a fellowship, we are able to, from our unique experiences, to help a larger group of people. Then on the top of 97, it's saying, helping others is the foundation stone of your recovery. A kindly act once in a while isn't enough. You have to act the good Samaritan every day if need be. And it talks about the fact that this is not a convenient process. It's not. But I understand that my recovery is absolutely grounded in the fact that I help others. So did I say to myself, well, I'm only going to binge three days a week and that should hold me over? No, I, I pursued the food every single day with every ounce of strength I had. So what makes me think that I can, I can carry this message occasionally? What makes me think I can just three days a week make some phone calls? I have to pursue this recovery with tenacity. And let me tell you, for those who say, well, I have, to, I have family obligations, I have work obligations, the best gift that I can give my job, the best gift I can give my family, the best gift I can give anyone I come in contact with is to put God in recovery above everything else. And when I do that, like that old Army commercial, we do more before 5.30 a.m. before anyone else does, is I accomplish more in 24 hours putting God in recovery first than I could in six or seven days in my disease. So if it's not, if what you're doing is convenient, I challenge you to do more because the benefits of that is going to be absolutely incredible. 
So we talk on page 98, um, which is kind of where we are in, in, in our study, so I'm just going to kind of skim over some stuff. But it says here, it's not the matter of giving that is in question, but when and how to give. The minute we put our work on a service plane, the alcoholic commences to rely upon our assistance rather than God. So that's one of the things I have to really work on too, because I know in my um, many years in OA, my sponsor was my God. I would say, I don't know. I can't make a decision until I talk to my sponsor. And I would encourage that in my sponsees too. That was the arrogance of the way I used to sponsor. I would come into the OA saying, my life is unmanageable. I need a higher power. And I'm going to turn my life over to my higher power, one, two, and three. And yet I would try to manage other people's lives. I would act as their higher power. And I would not let them make a decision until they talked to me first. And I fostered. That's what they're saying on a service plan. I'm not saying service like step 12. They're saying when we put ourselves as the, the expert, as the one they have to put their, their, all their questions toward, we're doing them a disservice. My job as a sponsor, my job working with others, is not to get them connected with me. It's to get them connected with God. Which is why specifically when my sponsors get to step 10, is I have to encourage them to do multiple step 10s, call people, get a group of like five to seven people that are number one going to bring you to the book and number two aren't going to be afraid to tell you the truth so that you have that core group. I would say, gosh, probably any of my sponsees use me as their 10-step buddy because they have developed a, a, a core group of people who are recovered. It's so essential we have recovered people in our life that will guide us to the book. You know, and this is an example. I, I, I don't know, many months ago now, a girl called me and um, she was on vacation for two weeks and, and she was working with four people and all four people picked up. And I said, well, where are they in the work? And they were in all different parts of the book. Some were in step one, some were still in step four, some were in 10, 11, and 12. And I, I closed my eyes because I, I said, gosh, should I say this? Should I say this? And I said, you know, can I make a suggestion? Because I always ask permission. If people don't want feedback, they don't want feedback. And she said, yes. I said, can you get quiet with your higher power and ask if you're fostering codependence? Because it just seems weird that all four people picked up. All four. If one, we're not responsible for anyone else's absence. Absolutely not. But if all four of your sponsees picked up because you were on vacation for two weeks, that's, that is a, that's a danger sign to me. And I have to tell you, that's one of the things I love. I've been away a lot in the last few months. And it was wonderful to not feel responsible for people when I went away. It was wonderful to say to a sponsee, listen, I'm going to be gone for five days. You have this recovered community. Why don't you call one of them, make appointments, start to go through the book in the chapter we're in, and then when I come back, you tell me what page we're on and we'll pick up from there. Because this, their recovery is not dependent on me taking them through the book. The recovery is based on them going through the book, and we utilize this fellowship to help us do that. Okay? So they're letting us know here that we're not going to stop drinking as long as we face dependency upon other people outside of our dependency on God. So I'm going to skip now to page 101 because this is something, once again, when I used to use the big book against myself. It talks from the bottom of 101. Assuming we are spiritually fit, we can do all sorts of things that we're not alcoholics aren't supposed to do. And it talks about going to parties and bars and all these different things. And I have to say, before I became a student of the big book, what I thought spiritually fit meant was, okay, did I say the third step prayer? Did I say the serenity prayer? Did I talk to my sponsor? Did I go to a meeting? Okay, now I can go to that wedding. 
assuming we're spiritually fit is a very specific thing in the big book. It's saying, have we walked through steps one through nine, and have we had a spiritual awakening and lines up with those 10-step promises in the, in the, uh, on page 84 and 85? If that hasn't happened, these next couple pages are irrelevant to you. When we're going through this process, we need to protect our abstinence. And I think one of the reasons that's so controversial in a way is because we take three years to get through the steps. So we're thinking, you're telling me I can't go to a family outing for three years until I get through these steps? We can get through these steps in a couple months. So maybe you have to not go to that wedding. But you can go to the wedding in six months after you've had your spiritual experience. And to go to page 101, that second full paragraph, because this was my prescription. Once again, I didn't equate OA recovery with the steps. I, I equated OA recovery with the tools. And it says here on page 101, in our belief, any scheme of combating alcoholism which proposes to shield the sick man from temptation is doomed to failure. That sounds to me like hungry, angry, lonely, tired, avoiding people, places, and things, all those different things that we're taught, which are really good for you if you're a hard eater. If you're a mild eater or a hard eater, those are going to be really good techniques. If you're the compulsive eater, let's see what happens when that's our plan. Continuing the text. If the alcoholic tries to shield himself, he may succeed for a time, but he usually winds up with a bigger explosion than ever. We have tried these methods. These attempts to do the impossible have always failed. So if our game plan for life is the, the tools, we're going to be doomed to failure. If we utilize these tools as a way to work the 12 steps, we will get recovered. My experience is I work the tools harder when I'm not working the tools. Because the tools used to be a checklist that I go to my three meetings, yes, but I make my three phone calls, yes. And I wasn't even paying attention in the meeting, and I was just asking people how their day was. When I am working these steps, I'm going to meetings to study this book or to teach this book. I'm making phone calls if I'm, if I'm a sponsee and I'm asking someone, I'm in there as a solution with my sponsor. Can you talk to me about the moderator, the heavy eater, and the true compulsive overeater? I'm getting a little confused. And as of someone who's recovered and I'm talking to someone, I'm asking where they are in the book. I'm asking if they have any questions. So I work the tools harder by not working the tools. And then it continues on to talk about, you know, about... Um, on page 102, it says, Why sit in a long, a long face in places where there is drinking, sighing about the good old days? If it is a happy occasion, try to increase the pressure that is there. If a business occasion, go and attend to your business enthusiastically. While you were drinking, you were withdrawing from life little by little. Now you are getting back into the social life of this world. Don't start, start to withdraw again just because your friends drink liquor. So I have to say that, was, that really hits me because... I isolated in my disease. I don't want to isolate in my recovery. I don't want to think that everything is going to quote unquote trigger me. Because I have to tell you what my biggest trigger is, is being awake. If I'm awake and I'm in untreated compulsive overeating, there's a damn good chance that I'm going to eat. But if I walk through these steps and have the obsession removed, I can go anywhere on earth. So if I am thinking that, you know, my program means I can only hang out with OA people, I cannot go into a restaurant, I cannot watch, you know, TV and, and look, at, look at McDonald's commercials, that's not what God wants for us. God wants us to be recovered so we can participate in life. So let's see what our new job is. It's letting us know on page 102, the second to last paragraph, what our new job is. Your job now is to be the place where you can be of maximum helpfulness to others 
So never hesitate to go anywhere if you can be helpful. You should not hesitate to visit the most sordid places on earth on such an errand. Keep on the firing line of life with these motives and God will keep you unharmed. I don't think Bill understood how prophetic he was when he, when he, when he wrote this because I have to tell you, some of the most sordid places on earth are OA meetings. Some of the places I get most resistance is in OA meetings. And I have to be willing to tell you the truth to give you a chance to recover, not in a mean way, not in a mean way, but in a truthful way. If you think that meeting makers make it, what I have found is meeting makers make a lot of meetings. And if I do a 90-90 and my, my um, recovery is based on that meeting, then on day 91 when I don't go to a meeting, I'm going to eat again. So we have to be willing to be on that firing line, willing to do that. And, I, and just a little trend I see, because a vision for you is a meeting that's very strong, and that solution is there. And a lot of people I talk to stop going to their face-to-face meetings. And if that's what you need to do when you're going through the process, do that. But your obligation when you get this message, when you are recovered, is to go back into those meetings. Go back into those meetings. Let them know that you found a solution to this. Let the people in Overeaters Anonymous know that you can be recovered. You don't need to be recovering the rest of your life. Let them know. That's one of the things I have my sponsees do. When they do step three, they call a newcomer and say what it was like to do step three. Let them know it's been two weeks and they're doing step three. When they do a step five, they call newcomers. Let them know it's an experience. Let them know that they did their four step in seven to ten days. You don't need to sit in a four step for a year and a half. It's our job to go back into the rooms and let people know what this 12-step program is really about. And then on page 103, it talks about, we are careful never to show intolerance or hatred of drinking as an institution. Experience those that such an attitude is not helpful to anyone. Every new alcoholic looks for his spirit among us and is immensely relieved when he finds we are not witch burners. A spirit of intolerance might repel alcoholics whose lives could have been saved had it not been for such stupidity. We would not even do the cause of temperate drinking any good, for not one drinker in a thousand likes to be told anything about alcohol, alcohol by someone who hates it. So my job is not to trash the conventional diet programs. If that works for people, because believe me, diets work. Calories in, calories out is a really good food, is a really good plan if you're not a compulsive overeater. So I'm not here to trash that. And also, too, you know, unfortunately, because, well, this is my opinion, but unfortunately, we, there's actually 18 12-step programs for food. And I'm not talking in OA. OA is one of them. There's 17 other 12-step programs for food. I am not here to trash them. I'm not here in Overeaters Anonymous when we have different areas in OA that, that have little factions. I sponsor people that are on How, See How, 90 Day. I don't care. Whatever you need to do for your food plan, which is why we're normally divided by how we do the food, is fine. So we need to do the steps. How without the big book is a diet. How with the big book is a recovery. 90 days without the big book is a diet. 90 days with the big book is, a, is recovery. So I'm not here to put down what other people are doing. That's what I love for a vision for you. If you, if you talk to members, you're going to find people from outside of our fellowship, the World Health Program, people within the fellowship who work their food tons of different ways. But we're united on the fact that once that food is down, that the solution is working these 12 steps. That is our solution. So the last paragraph of this chapter says, after all, our problems are our own making. Bottles were only a symptom. Besides, we have stopped fighting anything 
or anyone. We have to. And with that, I'm going to pass, and thank you so much, Leah, for the opportunity. Thank you, Kim, for your clear message and your experience this morning regarding Chapter 7, Working with Others. We thank you for your time and energy this morning. Contact information will be given after the conclusion of this recording. And now we're going to open the floor for any questions you might have on Chapter 7, Working with Others, anything that was said this morning. Star 1 to unmute and identify yourself, please. Hi, this is Sima from New Jersey. Sima, go ahead. I I, I don't have necessarily questions. I just wanted to uh, applaud uh, Kim because I feel exactly the same way. I first came to OA 40 years ago, and I've only just gotten recovery a year ago, since a year, maybe since January, but I've been abstinent over a year. And uh, I just wanted to ask her how long it was since she first came into OA. Thanks, Emma. Um, I I came in in uh, June of 1994, so it's actually been 20 years. I went went into one meeting, and I didn't come back for six months because the girl that was telling her story was an incest survivor. There were three newcomers. The other two were sexual abuse survivors, and the whole entire meeting was about sexual abuse. And I honestly didn't feel like I belonged there. So I didn't come back for another six months until the the, uh, food beat me into a state of reasonableness. And uh, it was three and a half years ago um, when I had broken my ankle, I was dead bound, and I discovered a phone meeting that actually told me what I was suffering from. And when I knew what I was suffering from, that's when I did the steps, specifically as the big book said, and became recovered in about six to eight weeks. But it was 17 years of working the fellowship with still going in and out of food, and then um, three and a half years I've been a student of the big book. Thank you. Thanks, Sima, for the question. Who's next? Hi, this is Nicole from Colorado. Nicole, go ahead. Hi, Kim. Um, I just first of all want to thank you so much for your wonderful share. And I'm just um, wondering what, what you do when you're um, sponsoring someone and they um, they do have a slip. Do you take them back to the doctor's opinion and uh, read that with them, or is there a, a certain you know, thing that you do that can, um, that help, that you have found to be helpful? Thanks for the question, Nicole. Um, first of all, I don't believe in slips. Um, I think that's something that we do in a way, and a slip is an accidental fall. I, I really line up with what the doctor's opinion says. We've succumbed to the desire again. I personally have never had a, I mean, a um, brownie jump in my throat. So I think it's important that I talk to someone about the fact that they succumb to the desire again. And if they succumb to the desire again, we look at that. We look at what was going on. Where, 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 was, where was something not working out right? And it's different for, you know, a lot of, it depends on where they are in the work. It depends on what the circumstances were. Um, I really ask God into it. Uh, my normal thing is I usually give them a bunch of assignments. I bring them back to that doctor's opinion. Is it the fact that they're not convinced that they're a compulsive overeater? You know, if it, if they've been if they've been abstinent and they're succumbing from that desire, which is the obsession, I might go into more about alcoholism. Let's compare Jim and Fred. Let's talk about the fact that if we don't have a spiritual solution, we're destined to go back to the food again. Um, and if they continue to pick up, I let them know that you know that I you know I would say nine times out of ten I'm fired because I'm really strong on the fact you have to be abstinent to work, go through these steps. And if people can't keep the food down, they just stop calling me. 
Um, but it's different. But I, I truly believe that we succumb to the desire again. You know, making a choice to eat something is not a slip. It's succumbing. Thanks for the question. Okay, thank you so much. I appreciate that. Thanks, Nicole. Who's next? Um, hi, this is Florence from Virginia. Hi, Florence. Your turn. Yeah. Oh, thanks so much for the awesome share, um, uh, Kim. And um, I've been on the meeting just for this past week, coming back to it, and people are calling me, and I, I'm getting a glimpse of recovery. Um, um, so not to talk about me, uh, but you referred to page 164, and you said that the Al-Anon literature, I think you said, help, helped your mom to uh, I, 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 I recover, and I, I'm not sure in what program and it has meaning for me because um I was on my way to an Al Anon meeting for my, my my goddaughter as my qualifier and I and I walked into a, an anonymous twelve step food meeting, one of the seventeen, and I said, This is my addiction. If I can learn to understand it I can help my, my daughter, which was a big hook for me because of the way I'm wired, you know, probably um you can understand that um as a helper. So um I just wondered I, I, I wanted to Make sure I understood that. Do you you see the Al-Anon literature is helpful for food, for 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 compulsive overeating recovery, or what did you say? Thank you very much for your share. Thanks, Lawrence. Um, now, what I was saying, my mom came into OA in 1977. I was 11 years old, and uh, okay. they didn't have we OA didn't have literature. Our literature came out in 1990, so. They didn't. They didn't have the ability to use OA literature, so my mother used a, a, Al-Anon literature and worked the steps through that. Um, I don't. I've never even seen the book to be honest. I was, like, I was a kid when my mom came in, um, but I have to tell you, as as a kid of a overeaters, you know, mom in OA, there was nothing she could have done to convince me of anything. The best thing my mom did is she lived a recovered life. So the best thing that each of us can do is recover, 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 and when the food beats someone down to reasonableness, when I was desperate enough, I, at least I knew OA was an option. And I didn't even tell my mom I was in OA for six months because in my own arrogance, I thought, okay, well, my mom's had to go for 20 years, but you know what, I'm smart, uh, smarter than my mother. There's 12 steps. I figure I'll go for 12 weeks. I'll get cured and I'll be done and she'll never need to know I went to OA. Um, right. So, so it, you know, I, whatever... It's very clear in here that we do not have a monopoly on God. You know, I do not believe that God is contained in the first, you know, is only contained in the first 164 pages. I just know for me it's the most direct, clearest, and quickest route. So that's what I can offer. If other people use other work, that's that's fine. But the only thing I have to offer is what's in this book because that's the only thing that's worked for me. Um, But back in the 70s, there wasn't any options for LA literature when my mom came in. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank you, Florence. Who's next? This is Katie F. Go ahead, Katie. Good morning, Kim. Thank you so much for your um, service. You did a great job. Um, one thing you mentioned is that when you work with newcomers, you have you give them an assignment. Um, so where do you get those assignments from, or or what um, or what did you mean by that? Thanks, Katie. Um, well, it's just something I've, I've learned. It's not, it's not anything from a formal thing. It's just something I've learned to work on. Um, and that's why I, you know, I find it fascinating when my sponsees first start sponsoring because usually you start out sponsoring like, you're, like your sponsor. And I find it fascinating to see how people ch- 
change in what they do. Um, but for me personally, what I do is we have a we're so blessed on a vision for you to have so many recordings. So what I do is I give them the option of two different recordings on our line. Um, one is November 22nd, 2013, is Ruth going over the doctor's opinion. The other one is Lori from Canada going over the doctor's opinion in January 5th, 2014. I have them listen to that. I have them read the doctor's opinion. I have them look for the four places in the doctor's opinion where it tells us we have to put the food down. Um, and then I have them look up words, um, three, well, four words now. I used to do three. Was uh, craving, um, allergy, obsession, and now that word succumb is really hitting me. So I had them look up that word in the dictionary. And then I make an appointment with them and we just simply go through the chapter. So I want them to get familiarized with themselves with the chapter. Um, I personally am not someone that writes a lot, so I don't require any of my sponsees to do a lot of writing. And, it, and a lot of my sponsees require their sponsees to do a lot of writing because that really works for them. And my feeling is if a sponsee likes to write, let them write. If they don't, don't. You know, um, but I find it fascinating because once again, we're going to be utilizing the talents that God gave us, and it's, I find it fascinating. Like one of the girls, um, it's not even I work with her, but we've kind of our recovery has kind of paralleled each other in my area, and she only works face to face with people in groups. She takes people after meetings and takes three or four girls through steps one through three, instructions for four, and then she takes them separately through the rest of the steps, and I find it fascinating. That's something I've never done. Um, so I, I find that you know that most people sponsor like their sponsor because that's what they're familiar with in the beginning. But then as they grow in effectiveness and understanding, they start to ask God in and they utilize their own talents and what works for them. I hope that answers your question. Thank, Thank you. you. Um, hi, this is Jane. Hi, this is Jane from Florida. Um, this is Sharon in Colorado. Jane and then Sharon, please. Go ahead, Jane. Thank you. Absolutely grateful. Um, thank you so much. That helped me a lot today. Um, I'm pretty new, not to um, the fellowship, but 26 years in two fellowships in food. And you, you said something that was interesting. You said, if you wait until they're at least 60 days absent, they may not be as desperate and willing to do the steps. Maybe when they're coming off a just down and you know down and out. Um, can you just? What I learned is that we have to get the food down enough to know that you know to be clear enough, and that well, there's always 90 days or more. But I'm just curious to know from your experience um, how, how how you maybe it's in the big book. Okay. I mean, you were going in, you were going in and out, but I think I heard the question. So let me repeat it back, make sure I heard it. That you're asking about how long someone needs to be abstinent before they start the steps. Is that the question? Yeah, and I guess what it, do you find more they're not abstinent for the um, once again we're going to be individuals. I know that some people require their people be abstinent for a week or two weeks, and like I said, if what's working for you. Don't change it, and I believe that God will attract people to each other that can help each other. The way that I read it in the big book, though, is if we look at it, you know, Evie was talking to Bill while he was drunk. You know, um, when Bill met Bob, he uh, Bob was, was 
passed out underneath the table um, one night, and then Bill went to talk to him the next morning. When Bill and Bob went to see Bill D., the third alcoholic, and that's, that story is in the vision for you, is they call the hospital and they say, put him in a private room, we'll be down in a couple days. So they were waiting for that lucid interval, that, that, that time. Um, can you hear me? I just started to hear the recorder. Yes. Okay, okay. I, I hit eight. Um, so for me personally, like I said, because of the food, a lot of us are, are following food plans that someone gave us. So I find a lot of people are actually ingesting their, their binge foods without realizing it. Is I assume when someone's going through the doctor's opinion that they're drunk. And then, um, and then at that point, when we identify those foods that trigger the allergy, and even if they're not sure, if something seems a little unsure for them, I ask them if they're willing to put it down to step 10. And then at that point, if they agree to that, I start the steps immediately. I immediately get them into the steps because I find that that's when they're most willing. A few days out, our egos start growing back. You know what? I can do this on my own. You know, if I would be able to keep the food down for three, four, five days by myself, maybe I can just go to meeting. But I think it's individual. You know, if somebody is saying, I mean, I, I think it's personally, this is my personal opinion, I think 60, 90 days is really dangerous because honestly, if I could, if I could stay absent that long, I don't really need OA. My disease hasn't progressed to the point that I'm desperate enough. Um, but the big book seems pretty clear that, you know, you wait for that lucid interval meeting. They've had the alcohol down for a day or two. Let's get them in the steps. Um, I hope that answers your question. Thank you, Jane. Sharon, go ahead. Okay, thanks, Kim. I'm sorry I couldn't get unmuted. Thank you so much for what you share. Just very, very clear-cut directions in that chapter as well. And um, the thing I wanted to ask is, um, I always take, you know, to the doctor's opinion because, boy, that's when the flashlight really went on for me. And then how do you condense uh, or do you go through chapters one, Bill's story, chapter two, three, four, and up to five, and how do you condense that down? I mean, I do line by line with them in the doctor's opinion, but how do you do that so you can get to that um, chapter five, which is, you know, more or less the beginning of steps four through nine? and keep it within that, um, I think you said, six to eight-week time frame. Um, yeah, I, I think there's a quote I love of Dr. Bob's, and he was about 10 to 15 years sober, and he said, you know, what has changed over the last 10 to 15 years for you? And he said, well, I can now say in one hour what I used to take me six hours to say. So I just find that I get more efficient carrying it. So... Like I said, God's going to bring to us who we can help. So in the beginning, you're going to feel awkward. You're going to feel, you know, as powerful as it is to go through this, this book the first time when you have your spiritual awakening, believe me, it's nothing compared to bringing other people through. I mean, that's yeah. when the power comes through us. Mm -hmm. So I just, I just trust that God's going to bring people that I can help. I, I have to say, at this point, I'm three and a half years in, I can bring most people through chapters in two sessions. So it takes about an hour, two half-hour sessions to bring people through it. I kind of have them read ahead of time, um, you know, the chapter. And it's different. If someone has never heard, you know, the Jim and Fred story and more about alcoholism, it might take longer because I'm really showing them that, those, those stories. 
if someone's been listening to a vision for you a couple of years and has finally beaten into a state of reasonableness, they've heard those stories. So I might be summarizing it a little bit more, trying to get them to do the loopholes. You know, I might be asking them questions to see what prejudices they have. So it, it's really different. But I would say on average it takes me like two sessions to do a chapter. Now, once again, I have another sponsee that now she does it two times a week for an hour each because she likes to do a whole chapter in one sitting. So she likes the fact that in an hour she can cover a chapter. She doesn't like to split up the chapter. She finds she's more efficient that way. So we just have to find, you know, and same thing. Like, like I only sponsor at night because I wouldn't pay attention to someone in the morning. I wouldn't. I'm just, I'm not, you know, I'm too scattered in the morning. So we have to ask ourselves, when are we most efficient? Are we most efficient in the morning, the afternoon, the evening? Because my job is to be 100% available to that person. So I think we need to, you know, we need to ask God into that. And it's going to change. You know, the sponsor I was three and a half years ago is different than the sponsor I was six months ago. It's different than the sponsor I am today. And hopefully I'll continue to grow and I'll be a different sponsor six months from now. So just keep asking God into it. And, you know, personally, I just trust the material. The material hasn't needed to be changed. So I don't need to figure out a different way of, you know, I don't have to to change the material. I'm just trying to get myself to be more efficient at um, passing on the material. Does that make sense, Sharon? Hopefully. (laughs) Thank you. We'll assume that's the yes. Yes, go ahead with your question. Uh, Thank you so much, and um, thanks, Kim. Um, I wonder if you could clarify or elaborate a little bit more on um, step one in helping someone identify their binge foods and key ingredients. Um, You mentioned about um, listening to those um, Ruth and and, and Laurie, which are very good, very good in terms of determining that. But you just um, mentioned that if there's a questionable item that, you know, you ask them, if they're willing to put it down in step 10. And I, I wasn't clear, um, you know, with working with others and if they tell you they're not sure or they can't come up with what the, those key ingredients are after listening to all of that. What do you mean by if they're willing at step 10? I'm sorry, I didn't get your name. Can I have your name? I'm sorry, I, I was unclear what your name was. Oh, I'm sorry. This is Kim. Um, used to be in Louisiana. I'm now living in Dallas, Texas. Oh, Kim, how are you? Um, You're right. Thanks. <laughs> um, I, what I, what I, I think I must have said that wrong. What I was saying is if you're unclear if a food is a binge food, be willing to put it down until you get to step 10 because that's when you reach restore the sanity. And if you want to revisit it, um, because, and this is just, I think a lot of us have prejudices because there's quite a few factions in a way that tell you what your binge foods are. You know, so I was told that, for example, wheat and caffeine were my binge foods. I didn't really think they were a problem because I, I don't even like coffee. But I'm like, okay, if you're telling me to put it down, I'll put it down. And, you know, so I was abstaining from something I didn't need to abstain from. What I do is I often say those things that are confusing um, I'll give you one example. For me, it was French fries. I feel like sometimes I would binge on them, sometimes I wouldn't. And when I started to look at those foods I absolutely binge on and those foods I don't have a problem with, I remembered how people would joke with me, hey, Kim, why don't you have some French fries with your ketchup? Because I couldn't even see my French fries because there was so much ketchup on it. 
and the ketchup is basically sugar and, and you know, red food dye. Um, so I was using potatoes as a vehicle to get my binge food into me. Okay, so when I separated out the potato from the ketchup, suddenly I could eat potatoes safely. So that was something I was able to weed out. Um, one of the ones I often see is, is this idea of white flour versus all flour, and people are really confused over it. So I say, you know, if we're not really sure, are you willing to give up all flour products until we get to step 10? And then we'll see. And I would say nine times out of 10, people are like, I'm feeling so good. I'm connected with God. I don't care if I ever have whole wheat pasta. You know, so I'm not even going to play with that. So if you're unsure, are you willing to put the food down and walk through the steps until you're restored to sanity to find out is what, I, is what I'm saying. So another example for me is I found out that, you know, I knew I was going to binge on peanuts and I knew I was going to binge on cashews. But I wasn't willing to do the experiment of let me see about the cans or maybe that I can eat an almond. I just, I just made the decision I'm not eating any nuts. I'm not going to take that chance and eat any nuts because I'm not willing to give up this connection with a higher power. So those are the kind of things that, you know, are we willing to weed that out? I'll give you another example is I binged a lot in my car um, because I lived at home and I'm, my mom's in L.A., so I couldn't binge, you know, bring food in the house really. So that was something I didn't do um, in, in L.A. When I would, you know, that was one of my boundaries. I would not eat in my car. But now that I'm being recovered, I have to say I eat in my car almost every day at lunch because I don't want to be with all the gossiping. And I sit out in the car with my iPad and I watch TV and have my lunch and then read in my car for the rest of the lunch. So that's something I've been able to return to because the disassociation is there. There's other behaviors. For example, with me, one of my big ones was grazing. I have to have a very definitive beginning and ending to lunch. I get an effect from eating in between meals. So I cannot eat in between meals. And if something is scheduled, I don't have the option to take my protein from lunch and eat it halfway between lunch and dinner. So what I talk about in that doctor's opinion is the effect, not how nutritious the food is. Food is not good or bad. It either causes the allergy or it doesn't. And that's one of the things I really work on in the, in, in the doctor's opinion is the idea of an allergy and an effect versus a good food or a bad food. And I really talked about ingredients versus food because we think that because something says fat-free, sugar-free diet, it's okay. But what we really need to look at is what are those ingredients in that food and what are the commonality of the ingredients that, we, that creates that phenomenon of craving. So it is a very intense conversation. And the fact is most of us know what, in my mind, most of us know what the, those foods are. We're just looking for excuses as to why we can continue to eat certain foods. So a lot of that's breaking down that resistance to understand that if we want to work through these steps, the, the um, doctor's opinion says the only suggest. Oh gosh, I'm losing the wording here. Um, the only relief we have to suggest is entire abstinence. So we have to be entirely abstinent to be available enough to work the steps. And I hope that helps, Kim. Thank you, Kim, for the question. Who's next? Hi, this is Donisa from Brooklyn, New York. Hi, everybody. Hi, go Thank ahead. 
Okay, thank you. Um, thank you so much for your qualification today. I'm kind of, I'm not kind of, I'm new to Vision for You. I've been in recovering for years. Um, sometimes I feel like I have to dumb myself down because I always feel that I know so much and that I can uh, figure this out another way. But um, and the reason I use dumb down because when I feel like I'm too smart, um, you know, for the fellowship, it, it hurts me in so many different ways. I um, So I'm new to, to Vision for You, and I have a, a, I feel a great sponsor because she's very patient with me, and she's taking me through the big book. Of all the years I've had in AA, um, I've been to big book studies, but I never actually saw me in the book. I would just read it. I would just do it like everybody else, and I would say that God is good, and all the time, all the time, God is good is what I always say. But the problem that I'm having, or one of the problems that I'm having, is the belief in God. And and um, I'm trying to, my sponsor's giving me her experience with it, and I hear, you know, on the bridge, other people's experience with it. But I have, and I hate to say it like this, this hatred for God, because I don't believe that God loves me, you know, because of my situations. And I don't think that he would do me this way. So, you know, I had asked this question before, and, you know, somebody said, get a, a God of your own understanding. Still having a hard time with it, you know, and I don't feel that I'm moving any further because of that, because of my hatred or my disdain for him. And and I just need, you know, your advice on that. Thank you. Denise, where are you in the book? Where are you in the book with your sponsor? Uh, we're reading um, The Doctor's Opinion. Okay. So first of all, you're not even there yet, so don't worry about it. If you're in the doctor's opinion, you're trying to find out if you're powerless. If you're not powerless, why would you care about a higher power? So you're, so you're not there yet. We will, I think that's one of the advantages these guys had in the big book back then is no one knew what the steps were, so they weren't, they weren't looking ahead. There was no prejudices. You know? and, I, and I think what you're having is a common experience for those of us who've been in LA a long time. There's an AA speaker I love, and he says, it's not what we don't know that will kill us. It's what we know for sure that is wrong that will kill us. Mm-hmm. So what I, what I had to recognize, once again, is my experience, look at your own experience in LA. If you have not been able to stay abstinent, or if you've only been able to stay abstinent and miserable, then try to be open to a new experience. And I know one of the um, blocks for me but I understood that I had to have this relationship with a higher power, and I thought, put down the food, have belief in a higher power. And that's true. And if I could do that in and of myself, then it would be a two-step program, right? Mm-hmm. Put down the food, believe in God. Step two is not a belief in God. Step two is a recognition that I need a power. You don't need to believe in anything specifically. You don't need to have a defined God in your life. Your powerlessness of step one, I am screwed. I am screwed. I have this permanent disability that's never going to change. I'm never going to be able to safely eat these foods. And I have a mind that's always going to convince me that eating this food is okay. That powerlessness is going to propel you to step two, which is a need for a power. And I'll tell you what got it for me after many years in the way when I came on a line and I heard people say it was recovered. I believed in my own powerlessness. I was convinced of that with these first few chapters, which you haven't even gone through yet. And I believed it worked for the recovered people. I didn't believe it would work for me. 
In fact, I was pretty convinced that this God of my understanding from my childhood, the Catholic school background, was out, to fuck, sorry, was out to screw me over. But I believed it worked for those people on the line. And that was enough to make me want to do the work. Because step two is a willingness to believe in a higher power. So it's saying in step two, do I need a higher power? My powerlessness propelled me to the need for a higher power. And that need for a higher power propelled me to make a decision in step three to seek that power. And then in step 11, I have conscious contact with that power. So what do I have to go do to get that need to having conscious contact? I have to do all those steps in between. Mm. If we were capable of putting down the food and having a higher power, then we wouldn't need the rest of the steps. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Thanks, Donisa. Anyone else? Hi, this is Penny C. I, I, I'll ask a question. Yes, go ahead, Penny. Hi. Um, I'd like to ask Kim what or if she's had any experience with working with family or friends, and does that work? You know, Penny, that's a great question, and I have to say I skipped that part of the chapter because I haven't. I, I, I honestly haven't. You know, we don't have, we used to have an O-Anon years ago, um, but, and this is my opinion again, is I think until our fellowship is healthy enough, we're probably not going to get inquiries from families to a certain extent because, you know, so many of us go in and out of LA, in and out of LA. I don't think our families take LA very seriously. It's just another time she's going to be going to those meetings. I know there's other people on the lines that have dealt with that, but I, I, once again, I cannot transmit something I don't have, so I kind of skipped that part of the chapter because I really have not had to deal with that at all. Um, I hope, I often hope that that's something that I get an opportunity to do because I think it's so needed, but I haven't had that experience yet. Thank you. Thanks, Penny, for the question. Anyone else this morning? Uh, hi, this is Lisa. Hi, Ch- oh, Cheryl. Did I hear Lisa? A- and correct? Cheryl R. from Virginia. And Cheryl R. So let's start with Lisa, and then we'll go to Cheryl. Thank you. Yeah, um, this is Lisa from Colorado. I really appreciated your um, share today. And I just ha- I was intrigued by the fact that your mother... I think you said was in OA for many years when you were 11. And in my situation, I got into deep recovery when my kids were pretty well grown. But I've noticed in my kids that they, the, the deeper I get recovered, the more they resist. And now I've got a son that isn't talking to me, and my daughter didn't talk to me for a long time, and now she's starting to to come back. Did you Do you have any experience, strength, and hope about that? Because it makes me want to just like, wow, I'm growing all this and doing all this growing, and my kids are just pulling away more and more. And I don't know if you have any, you know, um, pushback or feedback about that. It would really help me. Thanks. Um, once again, I was a kid when I came in. I have to tell you, the main thing I remember is that my mom had a four-step meeting in my house on Wednesdays, and me and my brothers were like, don't get sick on Wednesday because those old ladies are going to be crying in the kitchen. And uh, those old ladies were probably 10 years younger than me. Um, but that was basically my memory of OA. Um, what I had to recognize for myself, though, is 
you know, I had a lot of sick relationships with people for a very long time. And just because I was changing didn't mean they had to change. And that they have every right to be pissed off because I'm changing the rules now. You know, my mom, I don't remember this. My mom told me when she first came to LA, she would decide that one of her problems was pasta. So we had pasta night every Tuesday. So she, you know, that was changed. The house was not going to have pasta night every Tuesday. And she was worried about us kids being upset. And apparently my comment was, okay, mom, good, because you're always mean on pasta night. Because my mom would get so uptight about pasta because she was so, I don't remember this. But, um, but I think that, you know, the best that we can do is recover and be consistent. And what I had to recognize was that um, people weren't going to believe my words. People were going to believe my actions. So I had to take the, I had to recognize that if I was treating LA as a diet club and I was getting losing weight and, and then gaining it back and losing weight and gaining it back and, you know, that why would people believe that this time is different? You know, I had to have my actions follow up my words. And once again, this is about the difference in LA, just to give you a funny story. My mother um, and I were very different programs in Over Years Anonymous. So my dad, you know, was married to this woman for many years. Um, my mom works the program that we, she does. My mom never weighed and measured. She just had certain things that she does. And my allergies are totally different than my mom's allergies, even though we're genetically related. And when I come into LA, my dad was terrified because I was really in bad shape and he was afraid of losing his daughter. And part of my program is I weigh and measure. So we go out to this restaurant and my mom's rule is if you go near a food, she's going to stab you with a fork. That's basically my mom's rule. She splits stuff in half, puts it in a, you know, a doggy bag, but you better not touch her food. And I weighed and measured my food, and I had extra, and I said to my dad, I'm like, Dad, you want my extra, extra beef or whatever it was? And he looked at me with fear. And he looked at my mom, and he looked at me, and he looked at my mom, and he looked at me, and he goes, I think I like Kim's LA better than yours. I get leftovers. You know, so it's going to be diverse is what I'm trying to say, but... When it comes to family members, that we just have to make sure their actions are consistent and that it's not our job to convince anybody, but it's our actions that will convince people. And that's why I think that whole idea of program of attraction rather than promotion is that people are not going to come into an OA meeting and see what's going on in an OA meeting and be attracted to it. They're going to be attracted because they're going to see our behavior outside the room, which is why practicing these principles in all of our affairs is so essential. Because if I go into an OA meeting and I'm losing weight and I'm, you know, being nice to everyone in OA and I'm going outside and I'm being nasty to everyone around me, who the heck would refer anyone to OA? Because all they're seeing is how nasty I am. I mean, I know for me, abstinence only, people wanted to throw candy bars at me because I was so nasty. Just eat. At least you were, at least you kept your mouth shut when you were eating. You know, I think I got off on a tangent, Lisa, but I hope that helps. <laughs> Thank you, Lisa, for the question. Now, Cheryl R., please. Hi, this is Cheryl R. Hi, Kim. Uh, thank you so much for your share this morning. Just fantastic. Um, anyway, what I just wanted to ask is, like, you know, there's certain foods I've absolutely abstained from since January, and I had been told originally about this uh, red light, yellow light, green light type of foods, and now I'm just, you know, realizing that I'm talking to you that there are things that, that uh, have become replacement, you know, things on occasion. Again, still eating them within the meal time and all that stuff, but that are trouble. And did you find that there were, 
you know, foods that change. I mean, again, if one is just willing to put down, I'm absolutely willing to put them down. Um, but did you find that, that there were foods that changed for, for you um, as you went along and had done the steps, which I've done and, and you know, do, doing 10, 11, and 12 these days? So just wondered about that. Um, thanks for the question, Cheryl. You know, I didn't mention the red light, green light, yellow light because that's not an LA thing, but I actually use that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, that's something to help a newcomer with. When you get through the steps, there should be no yellow food. Mm-hmm. You know, there shouldn't be. If you either create the phenomenon of creating it doesn't, that's just a tool to help a newcomer. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, the whole thing I was mentioning about nuts, that was something I discovered after I'd been abstinent for a while because I was actually trying to figure out how to put nuts in every freaking meal. I was putting nuts <laughs> in my oatmeal. You know? <laughs> Yes, okay, <laughs> got it. Um, so what I have found for myself is as I get older, once again, my just because I'm not eating doesn't mean my disease isn't progressing. So to a certain extent, yes, the, the room has felt the road for food might have, might have gotten more narrow. But as the road for food gets more narrow, my, my life gets wider. My life experience gets wider. So it's a lot easier to say, you know what, I need to give up this food now. Um, there is a, um, Leia says it, I'll give you an example, Leia says it, when a food gets too sexy, she gives it up. So when I'm starting to, on a meal, knowing I'm having, let's say, a protein, a starch, a vegetable, and a, forget what else, a fruit, but all I'm thinking about is I want, can't wait till I get that starch, I have to look at that. You know, and just an example, um, you know, I cook for my family, it's kind of funny, because I have me... With my allergies, I have my mother who has different allergies. I have a brother that's diabetic, so I have to, you know, watch certain things for him. I have a father that is the moderate eater. That if he's if, if he's being cooked for, he'll eat enough for three people. So cooking for my family is fine. Um, but I made something um, that was all ingredients that I can eat, but it was something I catered towards my brother because of the way that he has to eat with his diabetes. And I had a couple spoonfuls of it, and I looked at my mom. My mom looked at me, and I said, okay, never making this again, because it was so good. And I, that idea, it was too sexy, this was like porn. This was like porn. I, even though they were all ingredients I could have, that combination was so exciting to me that I knew that I could never make it again, because I cannot take that chance that food is going to disconnect me from my higher power. Does that make sense, Cheryl? Yes, Kim, that absolutely makes sense. Thank you so much. You're Thank welcome, Cheryl, for the question. And anyone else before we wrap up this morning? Sarah. Sarah, your turn. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Leah. Thank you, Kim, for your share. Um, you know, uh, what I have found is, uh, you know, not only the, the types of food but the eating behaviors are so important, and, um, you know, in the doctor's opinion, uh, you know, I've utilized other sources besides the big book, uh, you know, the 12 and 12 and non-conference approved, but that's very OA directed, but, um, you know, I'm wondering how much you go into that with people as far as uh, behaviors, because what I find for myself especially, you know, standing and eating, um, hand-to-mouth type of thing. You know, you talked a little bit about nuts, but it's almost the action more than the, you know, because popcorn can be the same way, I think, for for some of us. But uh, just, you know, the eating behaviors 
and also, what if somebody comes back to you? Let's say you, you know, they 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 struggle, and uh, you know, they, they they don't call you anymore. They just kind of fade out, which happens a lot with people. Uh, how do you go about uh, dealing with that uh, if they decide that they want to come back and you're kind of filled up with with um, you know, yeah, you, you don't have the time or the place to to, to offer them what they need, uh, you know. Just, just out of curiosity, what do you do with that? And I'll pass. Thank you. Thanks, Sarah. I'll, okay, I'll um, come back. I'm this down. So, so the behaviors, absolutely, it's important. But once again, this is not about behaviors like dieting. This is not about trying to, um, you know, find out ways that we can control it. We have to look at it from the effect. What creates the effect? So I'm just going to give you an example. I had a sponsor years ago that um, we would go, let's say we both went to lunch and we both forgot our fruits. I am someone that one of the effects, I guess, from a behavior is grazing, like I mentioned. It's, you know, I used to just eat a little bit all day long and I, to keep that effect going all day long. So if I forget my fruit at lunch, I don't have the ability to go home and have that fruit between lunch and dinner because I'm going to get an effect because I'm getting to eat between a meal. Now, my sponsor at the time, she gets an effect from not having the fruit, she got away with something. So if she forgets her fruit, she has to go home and have her fruit. So it's not about talking as much about the behaviors as a, as a dieting thing, but talking to them about when do you get that effect? How do you get that effect? So, for example, I'll give another example with weighing and measuring. If I can't get that effect from a Snickers bar, I can get that effect from eating enough mashed potatoes, which is why I weigh and measure which also explains why in my 20s, not even understanding the disease, that I knew whenever I died that I was going to gain weight because as long as I'm staying from the foods that I want, my, my um, eating of the not foods I didn't want as much increased so much because I had to be chasing that effect and I would have more calories and I would gain weight. Okay? Other people might weigh and measure just because it's a way for them to gauge their calories so they can lose weight. So for me, weighing and measuring is a part of my abstinence. And for someone else, weighing and measuring is a part of their food plan. And this abstinence, once again, is those things that create the phenomenon of craving. A food plan is those boundaries and limitations around the foods that you do eat. So we have to be clear on what creates the effect more than getting caught up in like good food, bad food, good behavior, bad behavior. So we're, um, And when you explain it that way, I find people kind of hook in on, you're right, I do get a charge out of doing this behavior. I do get a charge out of this behavior or this food, and that's what we got to abstain from. Um, and as far as, you know, someone coming back, you know, I don't think there's any difference. You know, I have the same conversations I have with someone when I first meet them as when I meet them for the third or fourth time. The only thing I have to offer is this book. So I just say, you know, where they're at or have they been binging or anything, um, you know, let's look at the book. Do you really believe that you're powerless? Sometimes what I do is I actually ask them to tell me about the chapter because I want to see what their understanding is and then I try to plug in the loopholes that they're creating or try to get them to identify in more. I do that a lot with people who know the big book well is I ask them, okay, well, what is your understanding of Jim and Fred and more about alcoholism? And then I can go from there versus me teaching them Jim and Fred. Does that make sense, Sarah? Yes, thank you, Kim. 
Thank you, Sarah, for the question. Thank you to all who posed questions this morning. And, of course, thank you, Kim, for developing Chapter 7 for us and sharing your experience with us this morning. And I'm going to close the meeting in the way that we always close our meetings here on A Vision for You, and that's from page 164. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then.